0: You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org.
1: Exodus, deliverance, a way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom, a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace Upon grace.
0: If you would, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. That's where we're going to be at this morning, Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be continuing our series titled Grace Upon Grace. Again, we titled this series Grace Upon Grace because we titled our series through the book of Genesis Grace from the Beginning, noticing and understanding that God hasn't opera- uh, operated out of this mode of grace in the New Testament. He started that from the very foundation of the earth and creation itself. Grace being defined as any undeserved gift that we have from God, nothing that we can lay claim to or or say, because I've done this, God, you should provide this. Grace at its core is something that we receive that is lavish, that we have not deserved. We've oftentimes defined it as a one-way love. In other words, it's not a two-way street. It's a decision made one way by God to love. And so we titled this because the beginning of this book starts with a conjunction, and, And so, and the story continues, and the story continues throughout all of the redemptive narrative to see God's grace upon grace upon grace for humanity. And so that's where we pick up this morning. I'll say this, it's been a week. It's been one heck of the week for us and for our family. Uh, We're part of a global church planning network. This church family GCC is called Acts 29, and our leadership team for the Northwest region Got together from Monday through Wednesday to dream and vision and plan about what our network needs uh, in the years to come. And so that's how the week started off. And then Wednesday, I met with our elders for a year-end planning retreat that we do every year. And that carried us through Friday when our staff came in. And our staff spent Friday and Saturday together and was home last night to my wife who was sick, a couple kids who are sick. And so we, I'm here and that is the evidence of grace this morning. So I'm here. I'm excited to be here, but it's been one active week. I don't say that for uh, sympathetic purposes or anything like that, but I do say it for this. Pray for me as I preach and teach this morning. Pray for my wife. Pray for my kids. Pray for our family. We really value and treasure and appreciate your prayer. So I'm excited to dive in to the passage today. I'm really excited. In fact, I would say there is no way that I can do justice in one sermon to the richness that is here inside of this text in Exodus 12. I mean, as I've, just from diving in it, I've considered, man, I'd love to go back and do like a series simply on Exodus 12 itself, because it is just so rich and there's so much there. And and so that might be something that we do at a later date, but I'm going to try to move through it as best as I can today, which means that we're not going to be able to read everything verse by verse. So One of the things that we do is we send out a weekly newsletter. If you're not on the weekly newsletter, I can't encourage you enough to sign up for that because what the weekly newsletter has in it is it actually has the passage we're going to be preaching on that week. The reason why this is a benefit for you is because you're able to read that ahead of time and get an understanding on what we're preaching about. And you're also able to help hold our pastors accountable to make sure we're faithfully preaching and teaching God's word week in and week out. So I can't encourage you enough to, to sign up for that. You can do that at the Connect table at the back of the room especially when we're preaching through a big historical narrative like this and we're covering big chunks of scripture it's going to be really important to get ahead of the reading and understand what's going on. So today our main point is going to be behold the lamb. Behold the lamb. And we're going to see that throughout this passage what the nation of Israel was to do was to behold the lamb. But we're going to see that is a theme that continued on throughout Israel's history to behold the lamb. In fact, one One of the prayers that Jewish people pray, and they pray every day, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them, listen to this, diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit at your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You see, the significance of the Passover that we're looking at today, the significance of the the Passover meal for the Israelites, the significance of communion or Eucharist that we take today. All of those things are really big and really rich and have deep meaning and understanding for the church today because God had a people, the Israelites, and because God gave them a meal to remember, a meal that was passed down, a meal that they shared. And what would happen each year at the time of Passover the oldest male, the oldest child in the house would ask the dad, dad, tell us what this meal is all about. And the dad would walk through a remembrance of the way God provided, the way God saved, the way God delivered. And so it's, it's, it's important. We see echoes of Exodus all throughout scripture. In fact, I would say, if you want to understand scripture better as a whole, the Psalms, everything, start, reading and understanding the book of Exodus because the echoes are all throughout scripture. But we also see the importance even from that of male leadership inside of the home to train and teach and raise up children and understanding. Again, we get to something like this today. In fact, if this wasn't remembered and if God didn't have a people and give them this meal to be celebrated and remembered as a statute forever, then when we get to something like Jesus appearing and John saying, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, And and when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, celebrates the Passover meal, we don't really have a big framework for understanding the significance of what Christ is doing. So it's really big to understand what is being communicated here today as we dive in and as we look at that. So with that, let's pray and dive in. Father, I'm excited about this passage. I'm I'm excited about your word. I, I love your word and thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that it is authoritative, that it is inspired, that it's an inerrant, that it's infallible. God, that it tells this massive, beautiful story and picture of redemption. It's not a story of try harder and work harder and climb up the ladder, exhaust yourself and figure out how to arrive safely into your presence. It's God, it's a story of your holiness, your righteousness, your justice, your goodness, and that there's no way we can measure up and make it ourselves. So you sent your son, the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, you came. Let us behold that this morning. Let us behold your glory. Let us behold the beauty of the gospel this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, behold the lamb is what we're gonna look at. Let's read Exodus 12, one through six. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It's important. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly other congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. What's happening in this story? How did we get here? Last week, Ronnie preached on the, the, the plagues. This is the final plague. Remember, the nation of Israel, if you're just jumping in for the first time, has been slaves in bondage to these Egyptian people for 400 years. So much so, even as Ronnie said last week, the bondage and slavery was so cruel and so unjust and so evil that they started killing their babies. In fact, they, they, they were killing the males of the household of the Israelites. They were taking them and drowning them in the Nile River. Not only do you see bondage and slavery and oppression and evil, what you start to see today is God's response to that. Scripture says, vengeance is not ours for the taking. In fact, God's gonna take care of it. What we see is God rolling up his sleeves. As Ian said last week, God is taking off his gloves. I grew up in a family where I'm the youngest of four children. I was the runt in every sort of way. Tiny little guy for most of my life. I think I hit puberty probably like 18. So I wish that was a joke. Very late bloomer. But here's the cool thing about having older siblings. I didn't just have older siblings. I had really, really mean, tough, and protective older siblings. In fact, in the seventh grade, I remember it so clearly. I won't mention the girl's name. Personally, in case she were to ever listen to this or something. But she kicked me in the shin and screamed at me, and I felt humiliated, right? And I think she did it in a hallway. Well, I went home and told my older sister about what happened. And my older sister's name was Ronnie. And I have seen. My older sister getting multiple fights. In fact, we got off the bus one time and one girl said something to her. My sister sprinted at this girl as fast as she could, drop kicked her, like the scene from 300, if you've ever seen that, where they say, like, this is Sparta, like that, and then just started pummeling the girl. Like, like my sister was bad to the bone. So I told her and she was like, uh-uh. So the next day I like followed her in, you know, right behind her to the school. I'm like, Sorry that's her. And, and she's like, all right, just boom, just shoves in the locker and like, like berries her up in the locker. And she's like, if you ever touch my little brother again, I'm like, yeah, I'm like behind her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, What's up now? You know, this continued. This continued because I also have an older brother. And also again, this is just a, this is a small picture of the family that I came from, but they were like monsters, both physically, but, but also just aggressively. Like there are stories, and I don't say this in boasting in any sort of way. I could tell you stories of literally my dad hitting people with like a mag flashlight in, in the side of their head where you can see their teeth coming out and shattering their windshields as they try to drive by. This is the family I grew up in, okay? And so there was, a, what, there was a guy who was like 18. I was like 16, and like he was picking on me or bullying me, and my brother came back into town, my older brother. So I told my older brother Greg, I'm like, hey, there's this, there's this guy who keeps messing with me, and uh, he's like a senior or whatever. And so uh, not only did my brother hear about that, but my dad heard about it. And so my brother and my dad were like, where's he now? And uh, I'm like, he's at the YMCA playing basketball. <laughs> so they're like, let's go. So that's what we did. We drove to the YMCA with my dad and with my brother, and the guy was out there, and he was like a, a, a big dude. You know, at that age in life, everyone's a big dude, especially when you're little and so he sat out there on the basketball court and like I saw him make eye contact with me and I'm like, you know, like, like I'm all bad. Again, I'm like behind them. He never came off the basketball court and nothing ever happened. The statement was clear. Dude never talked to me again. So th- th- there was a known fact around our town. I remember one guy was like, you're gonna bring your dad in this? I'm like, yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're bringing your dad. I'm like, absolutely, 100% I'm bringing my dad in this. So, and, but it was a known thing. It's like, you don't mess with these people. <laughs> and if you mess with the, the little one, you're gonna have problems with the older ones. What we're actually starting to see here with all of my family stuff, the other side of that is my dad was never a safe refuge. He was never a place to go. Like, yes, he was protective, which I believe is, is him being created in the image of God as, as a protective, loving God. But that safe, compassionate, nurturing, that was not there. What we're starting to see here is God's rolling up his sleeves. He's taking off off his gloves because he calls the nation of Israel Israel, my firstborn son. And so what you are doing is injustice to my son, to my child. And now I'm I'm stepping in and I'm going to protect. In fact, we don't see God just, just flippantly doing this either. He's been so patient. In fact, far more patient than I would ever be allowing these people to repent, giving them opportunity after opportunity. But now he's saying no more. These are my people. This is my firstborn son and I'm stepping in. And so the premise of what's happening here is the Passover meal is, is, is God is saying, I'm bringing like my ultimate judgment tonight. And so here's what you're going to need to do, Israelites. You're, you're going to need to do this. And so we're introduced first to the meal. The meal helps us to remember and helps us to behold the lamb. And so that's where we start off is we start off with the beginning of the months, Why why does God say that? Why does God's word say that in first one? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. The reason why God says this is because God is starting over the calendar year for his nation, for his people. And God is not saying that, look, after you do work for me, after you work hard for me, after you do these things for me, then I will provide a, a meal a celebration, and a place for you to slow down and rest. God is saying, here's how my calendar is going to work, and here's how I operate. The start of the year is going to be a day of remembrance and beholding. The start of the year is not going to be a day of working, checking off boxes, or doing something for me. The start of the year, the first day of the calendar, is going to be you remembering the deliverance that I provided for you based upon nothing you did. So the beginning starts there. He's starting over a new calendar, and it's not a calendar that says, work all year. Israelites, work all year, my people. And if you work really hard, then I'll deliver you. He's saying, no, no, no. The start of the year comes with the meal and the meal shows this, you can rest because I've provided your deliverance. And then he says, here's how the meal is gonna be celebrated. So what do we need? The meal helps us behold the lamb. And so we need a meal. But what we need for the meal is we need a lamb. That's why it says in verse three, tell all the congregation that on the 10th day of this month, man shall take a lamb according to their father's household, a lamb for his household. We also see in verse five, Look there with me. Verse 5 says this your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. What do we know about this meal? We know this. This meal that helps us behold the lamb, celebration of remembrance of God's deliverance. A day where they could slow down and picture that. Started with a male lamb without blemish, without spot, without any sort of defect. Why? It needed to be pure, it needed to be perfect. Because as Ian just said, it was going to be laid down as a sacrifice. It was going to be laid down as atonement. Why would God ask the nation of Israel to kill a lamb? Because it takes us back to the garden in Genesis 3, when God says the wages of your sin is death. That means death is the result of sin. That means the very thing that needs to make the payment for the sin is going to be death and it's going to be blood. Blood is symbolic of life. We see this all the time when when people pass out or freak out because they see blood coming out of their bodies. Logically, they know that stuff's supposed to be in there, not out here, because it's symbolic for life. So God's requiring death. God's requiring blood. God's requiring life. And here's why. God is holy, God is just, and God is righteous, and you wouldn't want it any other way. I'm the guy that when I watch movies, and I see the evil injustice, and then, and, and then the hero steps in and starts to save, they can't really do enough to satisfy my justice. I'm like, yeah, break his knees. You know, I'm just, It's dark. Get him. Why? An intrinsic sense of justice. And an, like an intrinsic sense of knowing something's wrong. You would never want a good God, a righteous God, a holy God, to be unjust because he would not be God at all. If God looked at evil in the world and said, nah, don't worry about it, he would not be just and he would not be good. He would not be loving. If I, as a parent of three children, see something wrong happening in my kids and I look at that and go, eh, it's okay. No, I hate that. I hate the evil. I hate the injustice because I love my kids. God, not willing to give up on his justice, not, not, not willing to sacrifice that, willing to maintain his holiness and goodness as a sacrifice is gonna have to be made a substitute is going to have to be brought in. That's why it's a male lamb without spot or blemish. God knows that inside every home in all of Egypt, the Israelites and the Egyptian, he knows what is inside every single home. Guess what's inside of every single home in this land? Sinners who have rebelled against God. So you, you need to see this and understand this because God is not just telling the Israelites, don't worry about it and don't worry about your sin. God is saying, I'm providing a way so your sin is covered because my wrath is coming tonight. And this is the way that my wrath will pass over you. Otherwise, God would have just told the nation of Israel, just throw some red paint on your doorpost. He didn't, blood was required because inside of their households were the same that was inside of the Egyptians household. And that is sinners, that need a payment to pay the price for their sin. And it needs to be without blemish. You know what I love about this story? I'm going to tell you, starting in verse seven. Then they took some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. It says in verse 11, in this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fast and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Keep reading with me. Starting in verse 13, it says, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What I love is this, is I am so confident, though the text does not tell us, there was all sorts of madness and chaos and craziness going on inside of the homes. I'm sure there were husbands and wives arguing. I'm sure there were disobedient children. I'm sure there were parents frustrated with their children. I'm sure there was all sorts of mess going on inside of the home. It was there because sinners were inside of the home. But you know what God says? When I see the blood, I'll pass over. God's focus is not what's going on inside of the home. God's focus is not on the sinner inside of the home. God's focus is not on the actions that are taking place inside of the home. God's focus is on the blood. And he's like, that's what I'm going to look at. That's what I'll see. And that's why I will make my decision to pass over. That's so important for us which is so freeing and so refreshing that what God chooses to do in his saving act of redemption for the nation of Israel and say, blood's required. This night, a male's going to die. It's either going to be a male lamb or it's going to be a male son. A substitute is required. God goes, I'm providing one. In fact, you get to see, even as Ronnie talked about last week, God's provision. Even when the hailstorm was coming and that plague happened, God was like, hey, before this happens, take the livestock, get them out of here, or else it's going to kill them. Do you realize that God, provide, God is far out ahead of us? He is our constant provider, and he kept the livestock alive so that when this time came, a sacrifice and a substitute would be able to be made on the behalf of the nation of Israel. That's huge. I, I, I don't know if you get that, but it's like, this is what's going to be needed a substitute is gonna be needed, a male lamb. And so to make sure that you guys are safe and I'm providing for you, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give warning to protect you. So when this day comes, you have blood. The other thing I love about this is we see if you jump all the way down to to verse 22, and we'll come back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But if you jump all the way down to 22, it says this, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Again, I, I can only imagine there are people that are taking the branches and, and everything of the hyssop, dipping in the basin, I mean, slathering on there. In, in, in some, they might have been a little bit, in some, they just, I mean, if I knew that it was gonna be the blood that God was gonna pass over, I would have just been getting every drop in there. But it's not the measure or amount, it's the object of the blood. In the same way, it's not, it not the measure or the amount of faith that we have in Christ Jesus to save us, it's the object our faith in Jesus Christ. They might've been inside going, are you sure? Are you sure you coded them? You know, are you sure it was good? Like like you got enough on there, but it wasn't about how much. It was about the simple fact that it was gonna be the blood and to put your trust and faith in that blood. Let's jump back up prior to that in verse 14. So this is what's happening just so we can kind of understand where we're at. The 10th and final plague is here. It's gonna be the Passover lamb. The other plagues have happened. Pharaoh's heart's been hardened. He hasn't listened to God and so now God is bringing forth the final plague. The final plague is I'm gonna kill the firstborn in all the land. Egypt's about to feel the deep pain and sorrow that all the mothers and fathers felt when their kids were drowned. God is saying, so my wrath doesn't come upon you because you all are deserving of my wrath. Sacrifice the lamb. This is gonna be your substitute. This is, what, this is the offering. This is what I'm providing for you. And this is gonna be something that he's saying, this is what you're gonna celebrate Every single year, on this calendar year, on this fourth, or, 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 or on this first month, on this specific day, you're going to do this year after year. You know what's really cool? God's telling them how, how they're going to celebrate everything, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, everything like that, as though it's already happened. They're on the other side of it still. God's like, I, I got this taken care of. What the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is, is it's subsequent to the Passover meal. And so you would celebrate the Passover meal on the first night at twilight but it's a week-long celebration, a festival, a remembrance, a beholding of the lamb. In fact, you start with the lamb, you start with this meal, and this meal consists of bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The bitter herbs were symbolic of the slavery and the oppression that the Jewish people felt. The unleavened bread was, was symbolic of the fact that they were leaving in haste and there was no time for the yeast to rise, but it also was symbolic of this, the, 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 the festival of unleavened bread is symbolic for getting sin out of our hearts and out of our lives. Because God was not only getting e, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, he wanted to get Egypt and the idols out of their hearts and lives. We know this and we know that, that, that leaven is symbolic for sin because if you read your New Testament over and over and over again, Jesus calls and says, watch out for the Pharisees and for their leaven because It spreads. Paul also gives these warnings and what they're referring to is sin is a disease that doesn't just stay in pockets of our sexual immorality and of our drunkenness and all of our stuff. It's a disease that permeates and spreads throughout the whole heart and life of the believer. But we also can't get this, please hear me if you've tuned me out so far. You can't get this order backwards. Passover lamb, God provides the blood and then he says, this is my deliverance for you, this substitute. Now, after that, Purge sin and get it out of your lives. If you reverse the order, you get religion. You get, get rid of sin, clean yourself up, make yourself better, do everything you can to make yourself right with Jesus. And then I will forgive you of your sins. That's not the order in which God works. And this text shows us that. The blood represents the purification, the forgiveness. And then God says, now let's get that out of your life. Now let's get it out of your heart. I think it's important for us to note that when we're talking about leaven and when we're talking about sin, sometimes our minds go to this. And this is a really good practice. So here's the point of application. I can't encourage you enough to do this today. Ask God this question. God, if there's any part of my life that is grieving you, would you expose that? It's a prayer we get from the Bible. If there's anything in me that's grieving you, expose us. That's what the whole week celebration was about, is getting the yeast out of their homes and getting the sin out of our lives. It was a time to focus on, because of God's deliverance, because of his saving us, because of his provision for us, we don't want to continue to live with sin and rebellion in our lives towards God. We want it gone. Not so we can be good, but because God is good and saved us. Are you guys tracking with me? But as we start to look at leaven, this is what's important. So often we can think of, here's the sin I need to get out of my lives. And I would absolutely say yes. In fact, I would say one of the clearest evidences that you understand how massive the sacrifice is and the substitute that God gave in this lamb, but ultimately in his lamb or in the son, which became the lamb, is are you willing to start to get sin out of your lives? Do you want the sin that's in your life mortified, put to death and rid of? And, and for the people that go, no, I love beholding the lamb. I love the forgiveness of the lamb. I love that, but I want to live my own lifestyle the way that I want to. I question if that's the ongoing trajectory of your life, if you ever have actually understood how massive the sacrifice and substitute is that God provided in his own son. We don't get Jesus as just savior. We get him as Lord and savior. That's the second part of this. Jesus, our God, thank you for saving. Now, God, be our God. Command us how to live our lives. The leaven that you might need to get rid of is some of the really clear stuff: the rebellious, outright stuff, the sexual immorality. I'm going to live the way that I want to live. I'm going to do the things that I want to do. I'm going to have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm going to continue to live in drunkenness. Those might be the obvious things. But you know, oftentimes when Jesus was addressing the leaven of the Pharisees, what he was addressing is get the Pharisaical legalism out of your hearts and lives. What he was saying is the Pharisees come in and he goes, here's this group of people. And what they're saying is that God's word is not sufficient enough to tell you how to live. You need to start doing this. You need to do this. You need to do this, do this. And, and so they're saying, this isn't enough. The, God's word is the line. We're gonna draw it further over here. And then they were telling people that they need to uphold that. And Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They heap burdens on people and tell them to live in such a way that I have not commanded Sometimes what people need to pay attention to is not just the leaven that they need to purge out of their lives as far as the rebellious, but what do you need to ask God that's grieving you? Because your religion, legalism, and believing that you can make yourself right before God is also in a, is, is a grievant sin towards God. I've been on both sides and have done both and still wrestle with both today. I'm not saying here that I've got rid of all the leaven in my life. I'm saying I've battled with rebellious sin and I've battled with self-righteous legalistic sin. The call. Is to, is to evaluate and purge and get rid of it all. We, we, we don't want it. Remember, he's writing to a people, a nation. Because if you're also one that believes that your sin is some personal grievance against God, you have a very small view of the way your sin has a corporate impact on people. Your selfishness doesn't just impact your life. And in fact, it impacts not just your church family, but your society at large. There's a reason why God calls us to get rid of the leaven. Now, we get to this part. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. And go serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. Look at the last part, and bless me also. When we're talking about getting rid of leaven, I oftentimes hear people say this, you know what so-and-so needs? They just need to hit rock bottom. No, they don't. This man did. I mean, this is rock bottom. You don't need to hit rock bottom. What you need to see is how massively offensive our sin is to a holy God, and we need to see that we need someone to save and reconcile us and be a substitute from that sin. How selfish. (laughs) After all this, he's like, it's not like he's the king. He's not like, and also, would you bless our land? He's like, oh, hey, go, take take all of it and just, just bless me too. Rock bottom, still selfish. A far different cry from Jesus who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for what they do. In other words, pleading for a blessing for them. That's a king. That's a real king. It's time to exit. We were driving back yesterday from our planning retreat, and I was driving back with JoJo and with Brad, and I was like, can you imagine this? This would be crazy. There is 600,000 men, this, this, this chapter tells us, 600,000 men, not including women and children. So you're, you're talking easily over a million people leaving this land at nighttime in haste, walking out of the doors of their home. I can only imagine that they're walking out going, the blood worked, it worked, we're alive. They're hearing the cries, they're hearing the wail. But can you imagine, these are real people. Moms are holding their babies. Dads are like, what the heck are we gonna do? We're going out into this desolate place they're marching out leaving the land there doesn't seem to be like some clear plan place we know they're going to the promised land what is it i mean this this would be this would be crazy <laughs> really difficult like okay god we we we're, we're trusting you you tear, you took care of us with the lamb take care of us now i've often wondered I, that's a lie i just recently wondered if the egyptians went around to the houses and places that the israelites lived and started to look at the blood on the doorpost and wonder, what's that about? What does that mean? Maybe that was what we needed. So they exit. They're going out. They're leaving. And what I love is this, verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. They, look, for 400 years, they operated as slaves under these cruel masters that were getting wealthy off the backs of them. Off their backs, off their blood, off their sweat, off their tears. The nation of Egypt gets wealthy. They leave and God shows, hey, this whole time, that's going to be your stuff. They take so much livestock with them. They take the wealth of the Egyptians. And so God's like, this whole time when you can't make sense of the evil that's happening, I've been building up wealth for you. I've been providing. Here it is. It's yours. They take that with them. Then we have, if you jump down to verse 43, We have the institution of the Passover. Essentially, God is describing how this is to be celebrated and who it's to be celebrated amongst. We'll get to this in a minute, but worship matters. All that we do here on Sunday, all of the Christian life could even be summed up in one word, worship. But let's look at verse 50 first. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded, Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Notice it says, the Lord did this. The Lord brought them out of Egypt. The Lord rescued them. The Lord saved them. The Lord provided the means and the salvation. We're gonna get to this in just a moment, but maybe you look at this story because you're in here this morning and you're, uh, you're a new Christian and, and, you're, uh, and this, is, this is new. I often have the assumption that so many people are familiar with the Exodus story. Maybe you're someone in here this morning and you're investigating the claims of Christianity and you're like, man, this seems disturbing. God's wrath being poured out on this nation and on their firstborn sons? I, I, I know you probably won't like this, but when we talk about leaven and we talk about sin, oftentimes the most subtle and deceiving sin that creates so much problems in our relationships inside of the church family, in, 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 inside of singles with their relationships, is this sin, the sin of entitlement. Do you know that no one deserves to be walking on God's earth, breathing his air, absorbing his oxygen, soaking in his sun, collecting his rain. There is there there is no one that's deserving of God's common grace. Not 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 even his divine special grace, but but the common graces that, that that we see. No one deserves anything from God and has the right to say, I deserve this, or you should do this. That's an entitled spirit, which leads to so many problems in our lives. And when we start from there, we, uh, it's amazing that we don't understand how, how can we have so many problems inside of our relationships because we're like, well, I should deserve this, or this isn't fair. Those words, technically, logically, if all that we deserve by God is his wrath and condemnation and eternity in hell, then we look at life and go, everything else is an amazing gift. I don't deserve all this. Life is not fair, but I don't get to lay claim to the fact that it is. So if we start there, then we start to see any provision that God provides. Again, Israel needed a substitute. Egypt needed a substitute. God provided one. And then ultimately, God provides the greatest substitute. God God provides the lamb, the ultimate lamb, the lamb that we get to behold. I love, 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 love our Bibles they continue, like our Bible continues to blow me away. Do you know that from this line and from the line of Israel comes David who was born in Bethlehem, but then Jesus comes and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I don't know if you know this or not, but Bethlehem was essentially like the capital of Mecca for sheep. The shepherds there were a specific group of shepherds that raised lambs that were used for the sacrifice of Passover meals. This is really cool. At least I think it is. So what they specifically did is this group of shepherds would, would, would take these sheep. And as soon as they were born of their mother, they would wrap them in swaddling cloths and set them in a manger so that they would not have a single defect on them. Bethlehem was known as the main driving producer of spotless, blameless lambs without blemish. So when when it said to the shepherds in the field, hey, boy, you got to come check this out. Jesus is born. In fact, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's lying in a manger. Kind of gives me chills. They would have been like, I gotta go see this because they knew what that meant. The lamb is here, the one that God promised, the Messiah. In fact, when John says, John the Baptist, whenever he sees Jesus walking toward him, he, his statement summarizes this whole thing. It says, he, he sees him walking toward him and he goes, behold, that's the lamb who is here to take away the sins of the world. What was Jesus doing here? Living a blameless life, a perfect life, living a holy life, living the life that we can't possibly live, following the commands of God, worshiping God, not, not allowing leaven, sin to come into his heart and his life. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples. He took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. He, he took the cup of wine, symbolic of his blood, and said, this is my blood shed for you. The disciples, Jewish men, would have known there's a massive element missing here. Where's the lamb? And Jesus knew, I'm the lamb. And tomorrow, when the rest of the nation of Israel is sacrificing their lambs and roasting their lambs, I'm gonna be hanging on the cross as the ultimate lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. There is not a more precious substance that has ever hit the dust of this earth of greater value than one single drop of blood that dropped from Jesus Christ to save those that were created from the dust of the earth. In fact, I want you to do this for me. I want you to turn your Bible to the book of John, chapter 19, verse 28. Remember what they were supposed to do? Take hyssop, dip it in the basin, rub it on the doorpost and lintel. Throughout Leviticus and Numbers, we start to see that hyssop actually has, or they used it for purification. They, they used it for cleansing, It was commonly used, like if someone had leprosy and whatnot, this was what they used to cleanse and purify them. In fact, in Psalm 51.7, David's cry and prayer after he has sinned against God is purge me with hyssop, cleanse me. Look at this text. After this, Jesus is on the cross right here. After this, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And tell me scripture's not amazing that's painting one full, perfect picture. Why is it here? Because the ultimate cleansing and purification and righteousness that we need is right here with this man hanging on the cross. Once and for all, eternal, infinite sacrifice. This is it. You're no longer going to need hyssop branches. You're no longer going to need religious rituals. You're no longer going to need ceremonial cleansing, ceremonial cleansing. You're no longer going to need that stuff. Jesus Christ is here. They dip it in the basin. They serve him wine. The hyssop represents that the ultimate cleansing and purification comes from this man on the cross. His words are final, authoritative, whatever God says goes. And he says right after this, it's finished. All that needs for you to be right, cleansed, purified, righteous before God comes from him. I'm going to briefly look at this for us. I know this is a little long today. It's a lot. So let's look at what all the blood does for the Christian that has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we need the blood for forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 1.18-19. Knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, ransom—that's what the blood does. Twenty twenty-eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves. This is Acts. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to be uh, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. So He obtains the church, not just an individual, a people. Colossians one twenty. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That means that on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's wrath that we deserve. A male was needed, a blemished one. And so Jesus said, it, it, what he's doing is saying, I'm the substitute. I'm taking the wrath. That punishment, it's mine. Satisfied. And because of that, you now have peace. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, it doesn't just wash us. It doesn't just cleanse us. It doesn't just forgive us. It doesn't just remove that. What it does is it brings us and reconciles back into the presence of God. That's grace. We get what we don't deserve. Hebrews 10.19 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, you can every moment of every day have confidence that you can run into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ that's covered you. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Sanctified means make holy. The blood makes us holy. Hebrews 13, 12 says that. Revelation 5, 9 says this, and they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Christianity is the most diverse group of people because the blood of Jesus Christ. In most of Asia, you have Buddhism. In India, you have Hinduism. In the Middle East, you have Islam. Christianity, worldwide, the blood of Christ. Revelation 7, 14, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the land. Not only does the blood of Jesus wash us, it gives us something, purity, righteousness, cleanness. It makes us white and you can't stain or mess up what Christ has done for you. In the same way, when God looked at the nation of Israel and their homes, God wasn't looking at everything else God chose to look at the blood. When God, when you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus, God chooses not to look at all of your life, all the things you do and don't do. God chooses to look at the blood for eternity that has covered, cleansed, saved, forgiven, redeemed, ransomed, purchased you and made you spotless. Then Jesus went into the grave and he came out, resurrected, proved everything he said true. And what's amazing, Christians to this day Jesus divided time, B.C. A.D. Christians to this day, historically and traditionally have celebrated the first day of the week as Sunday. Why? We don't work all week long to try to get a day off from God. Look, I've worked hard all week. I need a day off. We celebrate the resurrection as the first day of the week because Christ says, I've done it all. I provided the salvation and you work from this. That changes everything. You don't work in God's eyes to try to accrue a day off. You start from the first day of the week with what God's provided. And he's saying, go work from that because that's different. You're not trying to earn it. I'm giving it to you. Just a couple quick things on application and we'll wrap up. Thank you guys for bearing with me. First, the way that we worship matters. First, the heart. And what Jesus is doing is giving us a new heart so that we wouldn't continue to believe and think that the more leaven we get out of our lives, the more right we're going to be with God. And that changes the way we live. If you don't understand that, you're gonna continue to walk in sin. Live according to who you are, a new creation. Number two, worship matters. Please hear me. I'm gonna throw out some big terms and I've realized we have a podcast called Saints and Society, shameless plug. We will do a podcast on this, but worship matters. In fact, all that we do on Sunday morning is not about you coming in here to get something that makes you feel good. And if the feeling's good enough, then you'll worship that feeling. We come here on Sunday morning to worship the living God because of the salvation he's provided. Communion is reflective of that. The the reason we're here and the reason we go to this table is because we worship what Christ has done. The Protestant Reformation, one of the things that came out of it was this, the regulative principle. The regulative principle talks about what we should do in worship is prescribed to us by the word of God. We should pray, we should read God's word, we should sing songs, we should take communion, we should baptize believers. And so there's a specific way that we do things here and it's purposeful. We wanna be faithful to scripture. We don't come here again. You're gonna be disappointed forever if your understanding of Christianity and the local church is that I come here so you can somehow just kind of give me a little tune up or make me feel good, and and, and, if, and if Ian does a good job, or Mark, whoever's leading worship, does a good job, then, then I'll say, that was good, because they provided me a special feeling, and I worship that feeling. Now, your purpose of being here, if you're a child of God, is to worship him, to declare the truth of what he's done. Third, we're called to go evangelize. If you have a problem with what God did to the nation of Egypt, know this, that if God hadn't done that and protected the nation of Israel, we would never have a Messiah, and the Egyptians wouldn't have salvation available to them to this day. Do you realize that the nation of Egypt actually has salvation provided for them because of what God did here? Christians, I'm pleading with you. You can't live a life in a safety bubble. We are called to evangelize. We are called to get out of our bubbles, build relationships with those that don't know Jesus. Why? Because they too need to behold the lamb. Finally, we're going to do what we're going to do now. I'm going to call the worship team up. If you want to grow in your Christian faith and walk, behold the lamb. Don't behold all your works, all your efforts, your daily things you do and don't do. Behold the lamb. The more you behold the lamb, the more you're gonna look like the lamb. We're getting ready to celebrate the meal that Christ instituted that represents a new covenant of his blood. It's the meal that Christians have been celebrating for 2000 years. It's the meal that allows us to say this, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. If that's true for you, come and take communion this day. If it's not true for you, don't take communion. But know this, we're not trying to be exclusive what we're trying to do is make sure that you understand the decision you would make if you take that. You would be saying that I'm beholding the Lamb who I believe has taken away my sin. If that's true for you, come tell one of us, me or one of our elders, because we want to hear about it. That message is available to you. We, there's also a reason that we do giving the way that we do it, because we don't want people to give under compulsion. Is, and We want them to give from a cheerful heart. But we also recognize this, that if you understand the substitute and sacrifice that was made, One of the ways we purge leaven is also purging the greed out of our hearts and we start to give to the family that we're a part of. And so I would call you, challenge you, and exhort you to consider giving and start giving to our church family. So that's what we're going to do. Lastly, here you go. Here's a challenge. Will you sing loudly? We're going to close out with nothing but the blood of Jesus. Declare that from the lips of your mouth today, loudly, worshiping the Lamb who has taken away the sins for you.